Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. If you asked a Roman Catholic, why do you believe in purgatory? They may say, well, because the Roman Catholic Church says so, and I guess that would be a sufficient answer in Roman Catholicism. But they, they may also, knowing you're a Protestant, they may say, well, you know, I, I think church history and also purgatory is in the Bible. So their presentation to you would, you know, may be something like this. They may say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the concept is. And in the same way, the purgatory, the word word is not in the Bible, but the concept of purgatory is taught in the Bible. Also, in church history, we have this idea of of purgatory as well. They, they actually said prayers for the dead in, in early church history. We have evidence of this in catacombs and burial inscriptions in, within the early church. And also in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, we know that the Jewish tradition, even before the time of Christ, the Jewish tradition was that they would say prayers for the dead and even offer uh, atoning sacrifices for people that had died. So in 2 Maccabees 12, it's this story of Judas Maccabeus. He's a leader of the Jewish army, and after the Sabbath day, they go out, and essentially, it sounds like they're kind of going out and picking up the bodies of the men who have died and giving them a proper burial, and they come across this group of men. They, these are Jewish men who died in battle, but they're wearing some sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia, and so it's it's essentially thought that the reason that these men were killed was because of this uh, of wearing these idolatrous tokens, and so they died in sin. And so, what does Judas do? He takes up the the army gets together. They take up an offering, and Judas sends that to Jerusalem to make a sin offering, an offering of atonement for these men who died. And so, the, the, even in the Jewish culture before the time of Christ, we have this idea of prayers for the dead and also this offering of atonement, things that we can do that help the dead, uh, help people who have. Died died in sin. And so this concept of purgatory is is found there. Now, as far as biblical evidence for purgatory, Revelation 21:27 says that nothing unclean can enter into heaven. Well, obviously when we die, we're not perfect. We're not perfectly clean. We need to be cleaned. And so even some Protestants would agree that there is this station of cleansing. Now, we don't know a whole lot about purgatory. The church doesn't officially teach what, what happens in purgatory, but in some way, we need to be purified of our uncleanness before we can enter heaven. So Protestants like C.S. Lewis even would say that he believed in pur- in purgatory. Also, a Protestant scholar Jerry Walls has written a few books in support of the idea of purgatory. So even Protestants, some Protestants would say that purgatory is necessary to be clean before we can enter heaven. In Matthew 5, 25-26, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about settling with your accuser before going to court. It's better to settle out of court than, be, than being taken into court by your accuser because the judge, if he finds you guilty, Jesus says this, you will not get out of prison until you have paid the last penny. So there we have this concept of purgatory that you you if you are guilty, if you have sin on your account, then you are placed in a prison and you can get out once you have paid off everything, once you have paid the last penny. In Matthew 12, verses 31 through 32, Jesus is talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he says that 
this that you will not be forgiven of this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in this age or the age to come. Now, Jesus' statement there implies that there are some sins that could be forgiven in the age to come, just not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So if there's no sin in heaven and there's no forgiveness in hell, then there must be some other state of existence, like purgatory, where you can be forgiven of sins. And so Matthew 12 gives evidence of purgatory. Now, the one that seals the deal for many Roman Catholics would be 1 Corinthians 3. This is talking about each man's work is going to be tested by fire. So some people in their life, they they the, the illustration Paul is using is of a building. So some people are building with good works like gold, silver, and precious stones. That's, what, that's the, the language that's used in 1 Corinthians 3. Other people... That their lives would would be like wood, hay, or straw, so not the greatest building materials. And so when you die, you go to judgment, and, and your life is basically tested by fire. Now, the gold, silver, and precious stones remain, but the wood, hay, and straw is burned up. And so 1 Corinthians 3 says that those people with wood, hay, and straw, they will suffer loss, but they will still be saved as through fire. And so this passage is teaching about purgatory as well. Now, there are several other ones, but just to kind of close out this this argument for purgatory from Scripture, another popular uh, passage would be in Hebrews 12. It says that the Lord disciplines his children. Now, if you're not disciplined by the Lord, you are not his child. But if you are, you if you're disciplined by the Lord, you are his child. And it's and in Hebrews 12 says that we must endure this discipline. In in verse 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline for at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so the modern thought about purgatory is that this that purgatory is sort of the the fire of God. The Bible says that God is is an all-encompassing fire. And so the if we have impurities, then the fire hurts us. And once those impurities are burned away, then the love it, it's more like the love of God. So if you hadn't listened to last week's episode, I give some quotes from Catholics about that concept. Anyway, so that would kind of wrap up the general um, sort of, hey, you're on a five-minute car ride and with a Roman Catholic, and hey, why do you believe in purgatory type thing? That would be kind of the general spill. So today, I'm going to start working through some of these points from the Protestant perspective. And so there are some other verses that uh, Catholics will use to support purgatory, but in you know all the hours and hours and hours of books I've read and debates I've listened to and YouTube videos I've watched, those are kind of the main ones. And so that's that's the arguments that I want to sort of attack from my side and, and show you why I believe what I believe. So you can always connect with me by email, bearchristianity at gmail.com. And also you can message me on Instagram at the real bear martin. And this episode of Bear Christianity is sponsored by Flush Training. All parents of young children are concerned with potty training their kids. It's a huge milestone to throw away those last remaining diapers never to be used again. But like most things in life, the follow-through can be one of the longest and most grueling parts of the experience. Once a child knows how to pee and poop in the potty, how can you possibly teach them to flush the toilet? Well, say hello to a revolutionary new training program, Flush Training. 
from the producers of Potty Parents. Flush Training is an 18-year program which begins once the child is potty trained. By the time they graduate college, 86% of all flush training kids will flush the toilet at least half of the time after going potty. This is a must for every family. Bear Christianity listeners receive a free year subscription when they use the coupon code for the last time. Flush training, because every 20-year-old deserves a chance to learn how to flush a toilet. Offer not valid in France. Details may vary. Some restrictions may apply. All right, the first argument that was made by our hypothetical Roman Catholic friend about purgatory is that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, and neither is the word purgatory, but the concepts are there. Now, let's talk about how the doctrine of the Trinity came about in church history. So, early church councils looked to the Bible. So, a bunch of leaders in the church got together, they looked to the Bible, investigated the scriptures, the Bible, and then based on that, wrote out what they believed the Bible taught about the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So all of their orthodox beliefs are found in Scripture. Everything goes back to Scripture for the Trinity. Now, for purgatory, the Roman Catholic Church defines what purgatory is centuries after Jesus Christ. Um, you know, so in like the 1400s, you kind of get most of it coming coming together. And then even today, the views about what happens in purgatory is different in the Roman Catholic Church. But so, uh, so over time, this full doctrine of purgatory is defined by the Roman Catholic Church. Then, like most things in Roman Catholicism, you have to put on your Roman Catholic goggles and you have to look back at church history and also the Bible and try to find any hint of any passing phrase that may possibly be alluding to purgatory, and then therefore the Bible talks about purgatory. So it, it purgatory has nowhere near the clarity of language from the Bible that the doctrine of the Trinity has for the Trinity. It is very clear from multiple passages in the Bible that there is only one God, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all referred to as God, and that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct co-equal and co-eternal persons. Now, you can look way back in this podcast, some of the earliest episodes, like single-digit episodes, are on the Trinity, so a lot more information there for you if you want to look into that. So the doctrine of the Trinity is fully grounded in Scripture. I am with Roman Catholics in my belief of the doctrine of the Trinity, but everything that I believe about the Trinity is grounded in Scripture. I can show you in Scripture why I believe what I believe. That is not the same for purgatory. Purgatory, like I'm going to show you, they, they do have some passages that they allude to, but there are other legitimate ways of interpreting these passages in the Bible without them necessarily talking about purgatory. So you have to take what Roman the Roman Catholic Church says, then you have to look back and try to find it in Scripture. That, that is the exact opposite of the way the Trinity was. The Trinity is people looking in Scripture and then determining the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture. So this purgatorial system and all that comes with the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, such as indulgences and the scapular promise of Mary and all, you know, all of these things that have been taught over the centuries, that's all part of the same system. 
Now, the next argument from our hypothetical Catholic friend is that the early church and the Jewish traditions also taught a concept of purgatory. So first, let's talk about these prayers for the dead that were uh, said to um, be found at the catacombs and the inscriptions of the early church, that they were praying for the dead and therefore this, this concept of purgatory. I'm going to give you a fairly lengthy quote from the book, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History by William Webster. And this quote is from page 114. So here we go. Quote, For at least the first two centuries, there was no mention of purgatory in the church. In all the writings of the Apostolic Fathers, Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, there is not the slightest allusion to the idea of purgatory. Rome claims that the early church nevertheless believed in purgatory because it prayed for the dead. This was becoming a common practice at the beginning of the third century, but it does not in itself prove that the early church believed in the existence of purgatory. The written prayers which have survived and the evidence from the catacombs and burial inscriptions indicate that the early church viewed deceased Christians as residing in peace and happiness, and the prayers offered were for them to have a greater experience of these." As early as Tertullian in the late second and beginning of the third century, these prayers are all, they often use the Latin term refrigerium as a request of God on behalf of the departed Christians. The term refrigerium is a term which means refreshment or to refresh and came to embody the concept of heavenly happiness. So the fact that the early church prayed for the dead does not support the teaching of purgatory for the nature of the prayers themselves indicate the church did not view the dead as residing in a place of suffering, end quote. So even though we have these prayers for the dead offered by the early church, it was for refreshment, and, in, and, they, and it was assumed that the Christians were in a place of happiness already and joy, not purgatory, not, not the punishment of purgatory. Now, the other thing that was referenced is 2 Maccabees, and it's chapter 12, verses 38 through 45. So that if you want to read the whole story there, I mean, it's not long at all. Uh, you can read that for yourself. Just Google that uh, reference, and it'll pop up. Uh, but... First off, Maccabees is not considered scripture by Protestants. So Maccabees is part of the Apocrypha. You can see episode 29 for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, all of that, all of those details. But just a few talking points here. Maccabees is not considered by script, uh, scripture by Protestants, by Jews, by Pope Gregory the Great, by Cardinal Cartan. There's a lot of other ones, but Cardinal Cartan, he was sent by the Pope to try to get Martin Luther to recant. So even that cardinal in a in a Bible commentary of, uh, earlier, before he was sent to, to um, talk to Martin Luther, he, he denied that the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books were actually scripture. So tons of people in the Roman Catholic past did not accept them as scripture, but you have to today because the, the Council of Trent said that it was scripture. So there's the talking points about Maccabees not being considered scripture. But let's just assume the Roman Catholic position here for a second that it is scripture. So this story takes place before the life of Jesus Christ. Judas Maccabeus, they they go out to gather up the, the soldiers that have died in battle. They discover these men that have these sacred tokens of the idols of Jamnia under their garments. Now, this, you know, I would assume that if you have idolatrous tokens that you're wearing, that that would be a form of idolatry. So we're going to find out in just a second that 
in Romans 21, 27, Catholics will say nothing unclean can enter heaven. Well, if you go a few verses earlier in the same chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 21, 8, it says idolaters will be thrown into the lake of fire. That is eternal damnation. Idolatry is a mortal sin. And so if we're going to fully you know, throw on the, the Roman Catholic goggles and look at this story, these men have committed idolatry, a mortal sin. There's no chance of them going to purgatory anyway. But uh, let's, so the Jewish people had no concept of mortal sin and venial sin and purgatory or any of that stuff. So these men are wearing tokens from idols under their garments. So Judas collects money for a sin offering. And let me read just part of this story. It's 2 Maccabees 12, verses 43 through 45. He also took up a collection man by man to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. Now, what's important here is we've just had a mention of resurrection. Now, resurrection here is before the time of Jesus or the New Testament. So there was a, a specific Jewish thought about what took place in the resurrection. For a lot of a lot more information on this, read the book The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. It's a massive book, uh, but towards the beginning, he talks about all the different views of resurrection and um, and just life after death, basically from Greeks and and the Jews and Christians and and all you know lots of different people groups that were living in the first century. So he sort of surveys a lot of that. You can find more information on that. But uh, this offering of atonement that that Judas is making for these men, it's a corporate offering for the Jewish people. And this is a concept that is very common in the Old Testament. Let me give you a few examples. Job did this. So uh, Job, in the very first chapter, it says, says that Job's children held feast, and then afterwards, Job would offer burnt offerings. And in Job 1.5b, it says this, For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did this continually. So each time they would have a feast or, or on a routine basis, Job was offering sacrifices um, for the possible sin of his children. So we don't really have this concept today in America. It's a, it's a very individualistic society, but that's not the way that the Jewish culture was. It, the Jews saw themselves as a people group. And so that so there there was a lot more like you have Job as the head of his household and the things he does affects his whole family. And in the same way the things that a Jew does will affect all of the Jewish nation. Now, a great example of this is Achan. So the people of Israel are entering the promised land. One of the first cities that they have to go through is Jericho. And so they win a mighty battle. And so there's a song about it that, that you learn in Sunday school. But anyway, so, so Jericho was like this mighty fortress city that the Israelites were able to, to conquer because God essentially conquered Jericho for them. But God said, do not take any of their gold or silver or any kind of jewels or anything like that. 
Well, Achan did take some, and he hid them in his tent. And so the next city that the Israelites go to is Ai, and this is a smaller city. This is a city that the people of Israel should be able to conquer pretty easy, but they don't. So it's a, a tragic loss when they, when they try to battle that city of Ai, and what's revealed is that Achan is the reason that they lost because Achan has disobeyed the Lord. So Achan's sin, his individual sin, is what is what caused punishment for all the people of Israel. And so Achan and his family are killed uh, to atone for his sin, and then now the, the, the nation of Israel is essentially right with God again, and then they can conquer Ai and move on into the promised land. And so this concept of sin committed by a, even a single person in the Jewish community affects everyone. Now, in the, the Jewish resurrection, you have this idea that the Messiah is going to come and then all the Jews will be resurrected in this messianic kingdom. And so that's the, the thought here of the Jews. And so Judas is Judas Maccabeus is making atonement for the, the sins of these fallen men who worship idols. But it's also common in Jewish thought that this is like a sin for the whole nation of, this is a, uh, a sin atonement for the whole nation of Israel as well. So there's a lot going on in this Second uh, Maccabees chapter 12 passage and lots of other ways that it can be interpreted not supporting the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory. And so it, even though there's some similarities, it, it's certainly not a, an absolute support for it. So Judas Maccabeus, he had no concept of purgatory or mortal and venial sins, any of that stuff. But here's the question. Does the New Testament mention anything about being able to atone for the sins of others? Can Christians get together and offer some sort of atoning sacrifice that will benefit people who have already died? Does the New Testament teach that? Surely, if this was such an important thing, then the New Testament would give us something about th that we should that we should do this. Rather, let me read Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 14. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, "Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, Jesus' atonement was infinite. Jesus paid an infinite price, an eternal price, a price we could not pay. So it is foolishness, in my opinion, to think that as a community, just like what happens with, with Judas here and his soldiers, that as a community, we can somehow scrounge together our money or our good works and somehow offer that to God on behalf of people in purgatory. Judas' offering of atonement for these men's sin, that 
that category there, that, that's not even applicable to the New Testament believer. So besides the second Maccabees passage, once Protestants and Catholics come to the Bible that they can all agree on, um, the Revelation 21-27 is typically the first verse used by Catholics as they start to defend the, the, their doctrine of purgatory. So they'll say in Revelation 21, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, that is heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's two basic concepts of purgatory. There's the satisfaction model, which is kind of more old school view of purgatory. And then the sanctification model is, is more popular in modern Roman Catholicism. So the satisfaction model, let me quote from the Council of Florence. This is in the 1400s, and this is an official, infallible teaching of the church. This is a church council. So um, it says this, in the Council of Florence. It has likewise defined that if those truly penitent have departed in the love of God before they have made satisfaction by worthy fruits of penance for sins of commission and omission, the souls of these are cleansed after death by purgatorial punishments. And so that they may be released from punishments of this kind, the suffrages of the living faithful are of advantage to them, namely the sacrifices of masses, prayers, and almsgiving, and other works of piety, which are customarily performed by the faithful for other faithful, according to the institutions of the church. So notice that, that if you die before you have made satisfaction for sins, both of commission, meaning sins that you actively committed, and omission, things you should have done that you didn't do, then you have to pay for those. And the, the way you're cleansed of those is by undergoing purgatorial punishment. So in the satisfaction model, you are being punished for the sins that you haven't made right with here on earth, you haven't satisfied for here on earth. And so in, in Roman Catholicism, they would say, you know, try to do everything you can in this life here, because it's a lot easier to make satisfaction for those sins on earth than it will be in purgatory. Now, this satisfaction model was dominant at the time of the Reformation, and that's why all these, you know, that's why people, very poor people, were even coughing up half a year's wages to pay to get their loved ones out of purgatory. Because in the satisfaction model, you are being punished. It is, um, it is, is a, like a torture, so to speak. It, it's, you know, it's uh, there's. I shared a quote last week where it's like hellfire, but it's not eternal. Is is what some uh, you know saints within the Catholic Church were saying about purgatory. Now that's not what uh, modern Roman Catholics will say today about purgatory, but that's kind of the thought. And so that's why people were coughing up so much money to try to get either either purchase a indulgence for themselves to get themselves out of future purgatory, or to get their loved ones out. So in the satisfaction model, indulgences make sense because this is a punishment. This is, is tough, and, and, and we don't want to go through that. We want to get straight to heaven. Now, in the sanctification model, which is the more popular modern Roman Catholic model of uh, purgatory, I don't think indulgences make a whole lot of sense in this system. So the, the church has to keep supporting this idea of indulgences because they're stuck with it. 
Uh, but indulgences don't really make sense. Again, in the sanctification model, purgatory is not like hellfire. It's the loving fire of God that is burning away your impurities, and you're learning through a process that happens in purgatory. You're learning perfection. You're learning obedience. And so you become a better, more, uh, or not more perfect, you, you become a perfect person. And so when when you finally get to heaven, you are truly made perfect. And so the, so that's what happens during sanctification. Now, indulgences are it, it seems to me that indulgences are just a way to skip over that whole process. So if I was going to start a business and and you know, you think about business owners who have started in their garage and now they're, you know, they've made it, but there was years and years of just grinding and and working overtime and things like that. When those people make it big, they have a greater appreciation uh, for the the journey. And also, they a lot of times, the way they run their business is different from someone who grew up with billionaire parents and they are just given the business to run. And so this the process helps us to grow and, and helps, helps us to mature so that the final product is better, so to speak. So in the sanctification model of purgatory, that is what's happening. And so why would we want to use an indulgence to skip that process? It, it, the process is necessary, and, and in a way, I can see how some Catholics will say that purgatory is a, a beautiful thing because God is sort of working with us, and even though it's painful, the end product is, is good. And so indulgences don't make a whole lot of sense with this model. But again, I think the church, the church is just stuck with supporting this idea of indulgences as well. Now, our hypothetical Catholic friend said that even some Protestants support the idea of purgatory, and he mentioned Jerry Walls and C.S. Lewis. So Jerry Walls is a Protestant scholar, and, and he's also a, a philosopher. Um, he's written a couple books that are about purgatory. They're called Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory. And then the, another book he's written is Purgatory, The Logic of Total Transformation. Now, what's important to know here is that while he's a Protestant and he does support a concept of purgatory, he's also written a book called Roman, but not Catholic. And this is a critique of Roman Catholicism. So whatever his idea is of purgatory, it certainly does not support purgatory as taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, C.S. Lewis is, you know, super popular in in Christianity. My this podcast is called Bear Christianity, literally as like a play on the title of C, one of C.S. Lewis's most popular books, Mere Christianity. And so it's probably the first apologetic type book that I ever read, and I really like it. Lots of of just brilliant arguments that are laid out in that book. But C.S. Lewis is not my pope. He is not infallible. I, you know, I can love the man. I can love reading from him. I can learn lots of things from him. Yet we don't have to agree on every single little thing. That's okay. And so just because a, a Catholic says, oh, C.S. Lewis believed in purgatory, I'm not bound to that. I, I, again, everything for me has to go back to Scripture. Is it consistent with Scripture? So let's talk a little bit more about C.S. Lewis and his idea of purgatory. In Mere Christianity, there's a, there's, um, a few different 
it, like like it's a set of four books. In the last book, mainly, there's there's some areas where you can see where C.S. Lewis is is uh, this idea of purgatory kind of flows from. Um, so let me read you a quote. It's page 172 in my book, Mere Christianity. But this is a conversation essentially between a Christian and Jesus. And so Jesus says this, uh, make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for, nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you, as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. So there's the the idea that that sort of motivates C.S. Lewis to have at least some concept of purgatory. In another book by him, it's called Letters to Malcolm. Malcolm's just this fictional person that he's writing to. Lewis says this, I believe in purgatory. Mind you, the reformers had good reasons for throwing doubt on the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory as that Romish doctrine had then become. So here we have plain there, Lewis says, I believe in purgatory, but in the very next sentence, we know that it's not the Roman Catholic version of purgatory. C.S. Lewis is using the word purgatory because people typically know, okay, that's something that happens after death before you go to heaven. Um, But it's not, he does not um, accept the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. So Catholics will say, you know, Catholics want Lewis on their team because he's such a powerful figure in Christianity, and a lot, and you know, a lot of people have read his books. So they would love nothing more than to, you know, be able to say, well, C.S. Lewis was really a, a Roman Catholic. Um, so, but they'll say here, they'll say C.S. Lewis is like when he says. I believe in purgatory, but not Roman Catholic purgatory, that he's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But I, I want to say this to Catholics. You cannot pick and choose in Roman Catholicism. So you can't just say, well, I, you know, I, I think we should accept the doctrine of purgatory, but there's some other things about Roman Catholicism, like, like the indulgence issue and things like that, that I just don't like. No, in Roman Catholicism, it's all or nothing. You have to accept all that the Roman Catholic Church teaches or none of it. You you cannot be a faithful Roman Catholic Church member unless you accept all the doctrines and dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. So this makes me think of Aladdin when, you know, Jafar, he wants to be all-powerful and Aladdin tricks Jafar into uh, asking Genie to make Jafar an all-powerful Genie. And so that's Jafar's third wish and and Aladdin says this, not so fast, Jafar, aren't you forgetting something? You wanted to be a genie and you got it and everything that goes with it. Now, what happens there is Jafar is made this all-powerful genie, but then he is confined into this genie lamp. And so someone has to find that lamp and rub the lamp and then Jafar has to be their servant. So he's all-powerful in a way, but he's stuck with everything that comes with being a genie. And so Roman Catholicism 
to to some people is attractive because they look out and they see, you know, there's a lot of confusion and all kinds of different teachings regarding Christianity or, or just religion in general. And the Roman Catholic Church says, come to us. We have the infallible Pope. We have the, the teaching of the church for 2,000 years. We've got church tradition. We, you know, it, it's consistent all the way through. And so they, 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 there's an attractiveness if people don't really know what's going on in Roman Catholicism. But you've got to take everything that goes with it, everything. Now, indulgences are a huge part of purgatory. They're not separate. There, there's this. The Roman Catholic Church teaches the that purgatory exists, and they also teach that indulgences are part of. Um, how you get out of purgatory. They're they're tied together. And again, you have to take everything with it. You can't say, well, I accept the idea of purgatory, but I just, I'm not comfortable with this indulgence thing. No, it's all together. So let's talk about indulgences again. Pope Leo X at the time of the Reformation, a very corrupt Pope, even modern Roman Catholics will admit that he was corrupt. He was selling offices of the church, and then also he authorized the selling of indulgences. So the Pope has access to the treasury of merit. That's the you know infinite, um, the infinite value in the treasury of merit is the the merits of Jesus, Mary, and the saints. And so this this excess merit can be distributed to people. Through, the, through indulgences, and this is what helps pay for their temporal punishments so that they can get out of purgatory. So these indulgences that were being sold at the time of the Reformation, my big question here would be, are these indulgences valid or invalid? You know, so the people that were giving up to half a year's wage to purchase an indulgence for their loved one to get out of purgatory— the, the church today would say that was an improper, the, the Pope Leo X was corrupt and should have never been selling indulgences. But my question is, were those indulgences valid? Did they Were they actually effective? I, I tried to find a, an answer to this, and the, the best I can get as far as official Roman Catholic teaching, and I, I could be missing something, but I definitely looked hard for it, um, is va- very vague language. It's in Indulgentiarum Doctrina. So this is doctrinal teaching about indulgences from the Roman Catholic Church. And this was, in, this was written in 1967. And it says this, Unfortunately, the practice of indulgences has at times been improperly used either through untimely and superfluous indulgences by which the power of the keys was humiliated and penitential satisfaction weakened or through the collection of illicit profits by which indulgences were blasphemously defamed. So it, it acknowledges that the selling of indulgences at times has been corrupt, but I never could find a, a specific statement, you know, those, indulgence, those indulgences did not apply to people who got them. So are they valid or invalid? And I would argue that there's problems either way. Because if they're valid, then here you have the Pope, Pope Leo X, corrupt, doing the wrong thing, but he's the Pope. And so you have to just submit to it. He's supposedly the the vicar of Christ on earth. And so he's completely wrong, completely against the Bible, completely against future teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Yet, because he's the Pope, then he can just sell indulgences. And if you give the right amount of money... Uh, you know, the, his his sellers would give you a written certificate and this indulgence is valid. There you go. But if it's invalid, 
then the Pope was leading these people astray and taking their money in the process. How were these people supposed to know that these indulgences were invalid? If you're, if you're a peasant, you don't know how to read, you are totally relying on the church to teach you about God and how to be close to God and how to be forgiven of sins. You're completely enslaved to the Roman Catholic Church for this knowledge. And then someone comes, comes along and says, your loved one is being tortured in purgatory and can't you just hear them crying out to you that if there's any way possible to help them, can't you help them? And so therefore, you, you give up a ton of money to the church, to the very wealthy church, I might add, for an indulgence. How are you supposed to know, as that poor peasant, how are you supposed to know that this is, this is doing nothing for your loved one? So if those indulgences were invalid, how are you supposed to know? And, and, and because in, at, in that regard, you can't trust the Pope. You can't trust the church. They, they're lying to you, and they're making a bunch of money in the process. So the Roman Catholic has to decide, are, are these indulgences that were sold at the time of the Reformation, are they valid? And if so, then the Pope can just be as corrupt as he wants, and just because he's the Pope, it's fine. But if it's invalid, then the church is false. The, the Roman Catholic Church is false because the Pope doesn't truly have the power of the keys, and he doesn't truly have access to the treasury of merit to dispense indulgences, to relieve temporal punishments and get people out of purgatory. It, it all He has a greater authority that is over him. And so then, you know, then anytime, even today, you're not promised anything even if the Pope says, yes, you have a plenary indulgence, that means nothing because you have to always test the Pope's actions and are these indulgences legitimate? So it's a problem either way with Roman Catholicism. And, and if, if they say that these indulgences are invalid, then the Roman Catholic Church is false. It all starts to crumble. The you know, papal infallibility, all of that stuff starts to break down if these indulgences that were sold by Pope Leo X are invalid. Now, back to Jerry Walls, C.S. Lewis, and the Roman Catholic Church. You could probably see here where I'm going with this. Walls and Lewis are not, they're not supporting the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory. Um, and, and their argument for purgatory is more of a philosophical argument, not a biblical argument. So the, this philosophy that leads C.S. Lewis and Jerry Walls to support a concept of purgatory, it strays away from the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, I've talked a lot about this in the earlier episodes on Roman Catholicism, but the imputed righteousness of Christ is basically this, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life of obedience on earth and died on the cross for our sins. He gives us, he credits to our account, his perfection. And so when we stand before the, before the judgment of God, God sees our perfection because we've been given that by Jesus Christ. Now, Jerry Walls uses an illustration uh, from and in trying to describe what C.S. Lewis believes. And so this, there's a YouTube video where Jerry Walls is walking through the arguments. And he's basically aligning himself with C.S. Lewis. And so this YouTube video is called A Case for Mere Purgatory by Dr. Jerry Walls, and I'll put a link in the episode notes. But anyway, Walls uses this illustration. He says that for C.S. Lewis, salvation is not so much the imputation of righteousness, where uh, Christ earns a 100 on the, on the test, 
best and you earn a zero, but Christ gives you his 100. Uh, he said for C.S. Lewis, it's more like Christ earns a 100 on the test, which enables you to earn a 100 for yourself. So that's uh, C.S. Lewis and Jerry Wall's uh, general idea of what has to happen or, or why purgatory is necessary. Again, and Jerry Wall says this in his lecture a couple of different times, that this is more of a philosophical type of argument, not necessarily a biblical argument. So I'll wrap up this episode with right there. Next week, I'll talk about Matthew 5, Matthew 12, 1 Corinthians 3, and Hebrews 12. So who knows? This may be like a 40-part episode here on on purgatory and uh, and the Bible, but we'll see. Now, if you, in, in Roman Catholicism, if you die, remember the Council of Florence quote, if you die without making satisfaction for sins, you must be cleansed by these purgatorial punishments. So in Roman Catholicism, as soon as you walk out of confessional and, and you've done your penance, then you just start accumulating more and more unforgiven sins, and so that it leads you right back into con- confession. That was Martin Luther's problem is, it, you know, as soon as he got out of confession, he would he would just be struck with the all of the all of the sin that he would now that that was you know immediately on his account again he never found forgiveness of sins in the roman catholic system the bible teaches that our sins are forgiven and we are made righteous by grace through faith alone sola fide our sins are not counted to us anymore it is by faith alone that we have the righteousness of god it is given to us and through faith. And so in our closing verse is Romans 4, 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 